Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to The Universe Next Door, and thank you for listening. Uh, We are very excited to be starting this Christmas season, and we're going to be starting a brand new series today called Stocking Stuffers, uh, where we're going to go through the life of Jesus Christ. So, Dr. Woodward, how are you feeling about everything going on? Well, I'm excited about the progress uh, we're making with uh, the promotion of the Against the Tide movie. That, by the the way, can be shown by any local church that wants to host the movie at their locale. And basically what they do is they turn their church auditorium, it could be their major, you know, sanctuary or just a smaller room uh, set up auditorium-wise, into a, uh, a virtual movie theater for watching a Christian apologetics movies. Woohoo! I think that's a pretty cool idea. But um, I think so, too. And, yeah, so, I mean, and uh, I, I was able to watch the movie. It was fabulous. Uh, Dr. John Lennox, uh, actor Kevin Sorbo were great. They were, they were almost as great as, as having them on our program uh, the last couple of weeks. What do you think? Yeah, almost. I, yeah. <laughs> I I'm actually I'm, I signed up for the thing where uh, we can watch the movie as a whole church as well. So I'm looking forward to that. Wonderful. Well, you know, I'm so thankful that God behind this whole project, God orchestrated those two amazing spokespersons for the and really kind of like a very very engaging hosts uh, to view the evidence and even go to Israel and and move around the locale, the locations where. You know, Christ not only lived and raised the dead and healed the the blind and made the mute speak, but he actually um, raised three dead people. And, and of course, uh, with the engagement of the power of God, the Father and the Son, he himself raised his own body from the dead. It's an amazing, amazing uh, mass of evidence that is accumulated now. And so I'm pretty... Yeah, I'm I'm stoked about that movie, and I think it will become, as soon as it's released in DVD form, a great stocking stuffer itself. But let me just kind of ju- dive into the idea of a stocking stuffer. Now, I don't know if uh, when you were growing up, Nick, you you had stockings hung by the chimney, or if you didn't have a chimney, we were using the banister of a, of a stairway that went to our second floor. But stockings are kind of fun to hang up, especially for kids. But um, Sometimes adults have them hung up, but uh, have have you ever had a cool stocking stuffer, something you pulled out of your stocking, even as a kid, and you said, yeah, woohoo, in your own way? Yeah, yeah, I did. It was usually candy and, and guitar strings, but at my uh, my stocking, <laughs> we, we did have a fireplace when I lived up near Boston. Now we just wow. put it on our entertainment center and pretend it's a fireplace, but... Oh, that's funny. Well, that's great, Yeah. Well, we have a big, tall couch with a, with a rather tall back to it, and so that's our uh, quasi or you know symbolic fireplace. But the but the stocking stuffers I'm re- referring to, first of all, there's really great new tools and resources and apologetics that would make a terrific stocking stuffer or even a gift. These are more uh, like a full-size thing you would wrap and put under the tree. 
and one is a Michael Behe breakthrough book, and I'm holding it in my hand. It is called A Mousetrap for Darwin, and it has on the cover the famous uh, flagellum, the rotary-powered uh, engine that is actually at the base of this fl the flagellum. It actually is like a propeller that rotates uh, around 100,000 RPM. That's fast. I mean, that's like a wow. dentist drill. But the RPMs uh, are just one kind of aspect of the brilliance of this motor. And by the way, it was just announced this week that they discovered that the flagellar motor doesn't just have one motor. It has two motors that are coordinating their action. Isn't that amazing? Oh, my goodness. And you said 100,000 RPMs? 100,000 RPM, and it has, what, wow. a, it has a sensitive switch. And this is on the back end of a single bacterium. We're talking about E. coli. They're swimming through our little intestines, you know. And so sometimes I make a joke. I say, uh, yeah, I, my, my wife actually thinks that she felt a tickle down there the other day, and maybe those were the flagellar <laughs> tails ripping against her intestines. <laughs> and, and yeah, of course, that must have been it. Yeah. Yeah, they're like maybe a you know a, a millionth of a millionth of an inch long. I don't think we're going to feel those <laughs> tails, those little propellers, as they're swimming around our intestines. But truly, each of those flagellar motors, with its engine and stator and drive shaft and U joint and the rotors, involves 38, an average of 38 to 40 parts. And in any particular kind of flagellar, there's a variety of them. They're, they slightly they come in with different versions and they're all high tech but if you take any one of those parts any one of those genes or the protein that is coded by the gene if you take any one of those 40 parts away it doesn't just work less efficiently it won't work at all which means each of these engines is irreducibly complex and is a nightmare for Darwinian evolution to explain because you cannot you know through natural selection build up one part have a little bit of function, another part improve the function, third part the function goes to an yet another level. In this case, you don't have any function. There is no advantage for survival until all 40 of these high-tech parts are there in place and coordinated together just the right size and the perfect fit. And so, um, but what Michael Behe has done in this, in this mousetrap for Darwin with a flagellar motor on the front cover it just was released this week. It is uh, literally a hundred replies to his critics. Literally, and if you want to give the exact count, it's 109. Each of them averages anywhere from three pages. I found one that is a reply to a geneticist who for a while was president of my alma mater, Princeton University. And his reply to, to that particular professor is really, it's like, uh, it's like a scalpel going into a wound. <laughs> to remove the <laughs> abscess. It's funny. He wow. does such a great, great job. But each of them range anywhere from one to maybe five or six pages is the longest. And each of these replies to the critics is, is a, it's, it's brilliant. I mean, it is a masterpiece. Each one is a micro uh, masterpiece of scientific reasoning. And he not only defends his, uh, his own skeptical view of Darwinian theory, skeptical view that any of these molecular machines could have come together by chance, by sheer dumb luck. Uh, but he actually just takes it next to the next level. He says, now, if this theory is so poorly defended, 
that even you know elite scientists make boo-boos right and left in replying to me, and he points out their errors, their errors of fact, their errors of reasoning. And when he says, he says, what does this say about the theory itself when it is supported only by a philosophical, you know, I want to cling on to it attitude, that philosophical preference attitude. And so his uh, book, A Mousetrap for Darwin, uh, just to read one comment on the back, from Michael Denton. We've heard of him because he wrote the book that launched intelligent design, even though he was an agnostic. Michael Denton wrote the book, Evolution, A Theory and Crisis, which he has recently updated himself. But Denton's comment on the back, he says, wow, what a book. Perhaps the most comprehensive and incisive critique of neo-Darwinism currently in print. And then, uh, you know, just on and on, many other scientists provide their kudos. So that is a great stocking stuffer. Let me mention one more stocking stuffer that we may have uh, put in front of our, our listening audience before, and that is Mama Bear Apologetics. Mama Bear Apologetics actually has a picture of a mama bear who looks like she's really um, putting it to the enemy here on the front cover, you know, arguing a point and saying, you stay away, you bad, bad dude. And the little baby cub is, is kind of holding on to mama. It's really cute a graphic. But the Mama Bear Apologetics has the subtitle, Empowering Your Kids, Empowering Your Kids to Challenge Cultural Lies. Well, this is required reading Hillary Morgan Ferrer, last name Ferrer, F-E-R-R-E-R, is the uh, editor, and she does probably about 70, 80% of the writing of the book. And so she is a genius in communication. You actually may be laughing about every other page, maybe even every other paragraph. So that is a great stocking stuffer. And the third one, which I'd like to actually have Gregory Gay himself come in, but his book, Communicating the Controversy, has just been released. Communicating the Controversy, subtitled God, Evolution, and the Universe. So we are blessed. We've had an explosion of new resources, great, um, not only books, but other kinds of apologetic tools. And so that's at the top of my list for enriching our sharing this Christmas time with others. But I'd like to shift gear, if that's okay, Nick, and go into God's stocking stuffers. That is, things that we find in the Word of God that are powerful apologetically, but they're also powerful as they speak to our heart. Are we good with that? Absolutely. Very good. Well, you can hear my shifting of the gears as we go into, uh, let's say, from first to second gear, roaring down the highway of truth. What we're going to talk about over the next several weeks is the literal introduction to the world, to the universe, but specifically to planet Earth, of God's invading force. And when I say God's invading force, what I mean is uh, C.S. Lewis hit the nail on the head when he said, the world is enemy-held territory. And then he repeats, that's what the world really is until God lands on enemy-held territory in the person of his own son. Uh, the rightful ruler, I love that phrase, the rightful king, the rightful authority, uh, who literally not only is appropriate to be named king, but he authored the universe. I mean, the universe is like his master 
uh, poem or sculptor or, or incredible novel, which uh, has built into it this incredibly exciting uh, story, the, the literal um, massive and complex but always leading to the glorification of Christ, this, this massive plan for history as it unfolds in front of us, that is part of the world that he created. Because what's a world without a, a plan or a purpose for it? And the whole plan for God's world, the universe and man within it, is to glorify not only God, but glorify every aspect, every uh, facet of God's greatness. And, and every single one of his attributes is literally shining forth in Christ as he comes into the world. But let me focus on a couple of them today from the book of Luke. Now, when you see in the stories that are embedded in chapters 1 and 2 of Luke, when you see how humble the Christ child is, not only in having to you know, use, as it were, a little borrowed um, temporary room, you know, there in the stable. It may have been in a cave situation. That's the way G.K. Chesterton, the great British author who had such profound influence on C.S. Lewis himself as, a, as an atheist a student at Oxford and even before that as a prep school student in uh, Ireland and England. But uh, the G.K. Chesterton view, you know, has him in a cave and literally regards Jesus and his parents as the original cavemen. Now, I think that's kind of humorous. I don't know about you, Nick, but you don't usually think of Jesus and Joseph and Mary as the cavemen, do you? Yeah, not quite. <laughs> if you think of some <laughs> brute, some you know, minimally human, maybe even pre-human, you know, some kind of uh, just kind of transitional form between apes and humans who's eking out an existence and just has kind of taken up residence in a crag in the rock that could barely be called a cave. Well, if Jesus, with Mary and Joseph caring for him, and the visitation of various shepherds, you know, who were alerted by the angelic host, of course, and maybe um, some other individuals, uh, we, we, we know that the kings didn't arrive, the magi didn't arrive until probably a year, year and a half, maybe two years later. Uh, they were delayed because of the time of transit and also the the interpretation of the star took perhaps a little work, and also the inquiry with King Herod uh, that settled the issue in favor of Bethlehem as the birthplace of the Messiah. But that's all in the book of Matthew, and we're uh, focusing today on Luke's stocking stuffers. And by, by stocking stuffers, I mean uh, the blessed little droplets of goodness that come to us from the book of Luke about the Jesus birth story. Now, one of the things to point out about this humility of Jesus is that, you know, he was of a kingly line, but he wasn't of a manifestly wealthy or powerful kingly um, lineage that was actually on the throne. In other words, there was a, a very low life, uh, morally challenged ruler who wasn't pure Jewish, King Herod had really moved in to control the throne, but you know the throne was something he more grabbed a hold of uh, rather than was granted to him. So it was a quasi-kingship. He didn't have any ultimate authority. He was under the, the heel of Rome during the whole time of his kingly 
rule. But King Herod did have a certain amount of authority. He did have a certain, well, you might say, royal sway in his in his realm. But the real king was not recognized, except by, of course, the alert, um, paying attention to the sign that was offered by the uh, single angel and then the host of angels to those poor shepherds who were nearby the birthplace. But just think of even the birthplace taking place in Bethlehem. Now, um, I don't know if you're aware of a little place, uh, Nick, called Odessa. It's a little bit kind of on the north end of the Tampa Bay area. Mm-hmm. It's out there. It's out there where there are lots of trees, quite a few cows, some sinkholes, um, a couple little ponds, and yeah. a lot of dense undergrowth. And, mm-hmm. and I don't think there even is a post office marked Odessa post office. It's like a, a patch of ground, you know, maybe a, I don't know, one square mile. Blink and you miss it. And so imagine if we're, if we're going to prophesy the birth of the Messiah in, in U.S. or even Florida terms, we would say in the U.S., oh, he will be born in New York City, or he'll be born in Philadelphia, or Chicago, or even Tampa. I mean, that would be pretty impressive. But what if mm-hmm. the prophecy said he will be born in Odessa? I mean, people would say, huh? They'd have to yeah. scramble. <laughs> They'd have to type in Odessa into their search bar of, of their Google engine or uh, they, they would have to go look up some, in some electronic, you know, some digital venue. What is Odessa the name of a country? Is it a is it a county? Is it a city? Is it a village? And they'd find it's a blink and you miss it village north of Tampa. Mm-hmm. Well my wife grew up near in the St. Pete area of a little teeny chunk, this little square, tiny portion of of the north end of St. Pete is a place called Kenneth City. Kenneth like the name, uh, and then city, is virtually a little bit more than one city block. And how it got cut apart from the rest of the Largo, St. Pete area, and so we're talking about surrounded by cities that have 100, 200,000, 500,000. Kenneth City, which is where my wife graduated from high school at Dixie Hollands, a class of, uh, well, I won't say that what class it was, <laughs> But but the but the Kenneth City um, announcement. Let, imagine you know, the Messiah will be born in Kenneth City. Well, you know from the city, it's got to be a town. But you think is it a big city? If you if you've never heard of it, welcome to the club, because you have to literally look it up on the map. And imagine the population is somewhere under ten thousand, if that. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm trying to say is that Jesus' birth was incredibly humble circumstances. Not a lot of power, not a lot of wealth, not a lot of manifest you know, fanfare anywhere along the way. But it was a, a, a totally human invasion of enemy-held territory, and it was a humble invasion. Consider when Jesus uh, went, uh, was taken at age eight days old, literally barely over a week after his entrance into this world, and he was at the temple in Jerusalem. And keep in mind, Bethlehem, the little village of Bethlehem lies about bare five miles away. So they would just have to put Mary and Jesus on a, on a donkey or a burrow and walk the five miles into Jerusalem, 
to in order uh, in order to have Jesus be circumcised properly according to the law of Moses. Well, the law of Moses stipulates several levels of offering, and the lowest level is what Jesus offered a pair of turtle doves. And so that's another symbol of how poverty-stricken, uh, how humble, economically speaking, that Jesus and his family were. So we see that Jesus was clearly in the lower economic level of society. His, he and his parents were not well off. My, my parents, when we were growing up, introduced my brothers, my three older brothers and me, to the, to the realm of well-off. So my dad would say, you know, we're middle income. We're not well off, but with scholarship help, you guys can get into a, a great university. And so we were blessed to be able to attend all four of us, Princeton University. But we were never growing up in that well-off range. But we were middle income. Well, Jesus was neither, and his family were neither well-off nor were they middle income. But the evidence of Luke in chapter 2 shows clearly that they were at or near the poverty level. And so, of course, Jesus' father, um, the carpenter that he was, trained him, Jesus himself, in carpentry. And that was a, a, a respected profession. Um, so obviously they had the, the ability, the skills, the, the business and, and crafting know-how to build back their livelihood because they, of course, had to move down to uh, Bethlehem for a while uh, because of the taxation edict that is described in the opening of that great chapter 2 of Luke. So I want to, as we get into a couple more of the details uh, before time escapes us, I want to just really just emphasize that the, the, the coming of Christ as presented in the book of Luke really features that the invasion of the rightful king and I'm using the, the terminology that C.S. Lewis uses in Mere Christianity, the coming and the landing on enemy-held territory of the rightful king, Lewis points out he landed in disguise. I think that's a key phrase that, that, that is used in Mere Christianity. Jesus, the rightful king, landed completely in disguise. You wouldn't have noticed him. Although there was the invitation and for the recognition of the arrival of the Messiah, there was the invitation of certain poor shepherds. And the description is quite clear. God invited the poverty-level workers in the field to come view the poverty-level Messiah who had just snuck, in, snuck into the world. It's an amazing presentation we see in the book of Luke. And what I find so exciting is that the book of Luke was crafted by a meticulous historian. So part of the stocking stuffer is that God is telling us this in a book that is renowned as the go-to reference book for secular historians who study the first century uh, history of Palestine, who study the first century history of Asia Minor, what we call Turkey today, and even Macedonia and Achaia, the modern country of Greece, because the description of innumerable details that Luke supplies. Luke the doctor, Luke the author, Luke the researcher, Luke the gatherer of, of eyewitness accounts as he interviewed and interviewed. And he refers to this in the opening of Luke, in the opening few uh, verses, Luke 1, 1 through 4. And so we can rejoice in the stocking stuffer that we have from the book of Luke. Good, 
powerful, grounded, historically trusted evidence of an amazing arrival, the invasion, rightful, righteous invasion, not by 156,000 troops, as you see invading France on D-Day, but just one troop, if you will, the person of Christ. But he did that for you and me, and we can trust in him as the one who died for us and rose again. So that's our stocking stuffer. Thank you for listening to The Universe Next Door. Thank you for listening, and make sure you go to apologetics.org and check out our video interviews with actor Kevin Sorbos and Dr. John Lennox. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week on The Universe Next Door. You've been listening to The Universe Next Door with Dr. Tom Woodward, sponsored by the C.S. Lewis Society and Trinity College of Florida and supported through the gifts of listeners just like you. To gather resources, continue the conversation, and support The Universe Next Door with your financial gifts, go to apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. And join us again next time as we continue to seek the truth about life, faith, and worldview in The Universe Next Door. Thank you.